G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. 2020, bringing a biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Weekdays on UCB's Vision Radio Network. Find out more at vision.org.au. This is an exciting opportunity to be able to talk about some of the ways we think about pro-life issues in Australia. Fresh off the plane, all the way from London, although her home base is in the United States, Georgette Forney is joining us. Georgette is the president of Anglicans for Life. Now, her ministry is the official voice of the pro-life cause within the global Anglican Church. Anglicans for Life has about 100 chapters in Canada and in the USA and in the UK. And Georgette is visiting Australia to talk about her personal experience of abortion and what can be done to help others find a more life-giving path. She's in Australia and uh, for those who live in southeast Queensland, she's actually speaking at a function tonight in uh, Brisbane Uh, at Fortitude Valley. It's a function that's being held by Cherish Life Queensland and Forward in Faith. It's on tonight at Legion House in Fortitude Valley. We'll talk some more about that as we go too. But Georgette, welcome to Australia. Great to be with you and your listeners, Neil. So Georgette, you're just off the plane. Uh, You've come from London. I actually, Melbourne. I'm Melbourne today. Yeah. All right. Okay. We've been to (laughs) Melbourne and Sydney and, um, yeah, on to New Zealand tomorrow. Okay. Home base is the U.S. Uh and Pennsylvania. And you have had uh, significant uh, influence when it comes to the pro-life issues that are being debated in the United States uh, to the point where at one stage there you were even addressing uh, church leaders at the White House with former President George W. Bush. Uh, yes. Those sorts of opportunities don't come along for everyone. You must be pretty special when it comes to your influence. <laughs> well, I don't know that I'm special, but I do believe that God has called um, and and asked me to step up and share what started out as a terrible tragedy when I was 16 years old and having an abortion. But because God redeemed it and I was able to get through a healing program and come to understand his love and forgiveness and um, basically give my ministry, my life to God to use to help people understand the sanctity of life issues, not from a a legal perspective or political perspective. I don't really feel like that's my calling as much as it is to talk about the personal because I think that life issues need to be addressed from the personal perspective, the pastoral needs, the biblical needs. And so that's really more of my calling. And um, actually meeting George Bush was with a group of religious leaders. And um, we have a great deal of support in the United States from our Anglican bishops. Uh, They come to the March for Life. So I would say that um, God has given me a, a platform, and our our prayer is that we um, use it for his glory. Well, Georgette, I do want to talk to you about your own personal story, and we'll do that in just a few minutes. There might be listeners who know someone who's been through uh, an abortion, and they might like to take a few moments to contact a friend, let them know that you're talking today here on Vision. Let me ask you, firstly, before we get to your story, the way globally 
things are unfolding with pro-life issues. Uh, Mm -hmm. We often talk about uh, the issues of abortion and the issues of euthanasia here on this 2020 program. But globally, if you're saying the big picture, is is this a losing battle uh, or is there real optimism in some different parts of the world? There is optimism because by its very nature, life-affirming ministry is all about the development of human life. And the other side that is promoting the pro, I hate to call them pro-death, but that's what they are. And and the death can be by abortion or by euthanasia or assisted suicide. But people that are continually working to kill people by nature are going to, in essence, run out of people to be promoting their ministry and their efforts too. So by logic, you have the those who are promoting life Having babies, supporting those who are elderly and terminally ill and disabled that need help. And so we are on the winning side. Plus, bottom line is, folks, we know who is who's who finishes the game, and that's that Jesus has the ultimate victory. So I believe victory is on our side. I believe also that we're seeing a great deal of ramping up of efforts on the pro-death side, especially with euthanasia. But also the uh, International Planned Parenthood and Marie Stopes, their efforts are increasing because they are losing momentum. They are really pushing now in the African countries because they've not been able to get the foothold they wanted in the Latin America and South American countries. So their last gasp is over in into the African nations, and they're not getting the support there as well. So I think they realize that their, their time is limited and um, – Life will always have the victory. I want to talk to you as well today about what's happening in Australia, and we can focus in and zero in a little bit on Anglicans. Of course, the Anglican Church is one of the primary church movements here in Australia, and I know that there'll be many of our listeners who are coming from an Anglican tradition, and they'll be very interested to know your thoughts on how Anglicans typically respond to these issues in a pro-life way and what the church might be doing. If, if you were giving a, a general overview, we might be able to get into some more detail, but uh, what are your thoughts on Australian Anglicans and their approach to pro-life issues? Well, I think that Austra- that Anglicans anywhere, especially here in Australia, have a, the Anglicans I've met so far in the five days that I've been here, I, okay, maybe six or seven, I'm losing track of time. Um, they have a real heart for the Lord. And when you believe and love the Lord your God, you want to serve him. I think that what happens is that we sometimes think that there's maybe limited things that can be done. One of the things that we've come to realize in in promoting this trip and, and my work here is that a lot of Anglicans didn't know that there was actually a ministry that existed within the communion to address these issues. So um, I'm hoping that this is the first of many trips here where we are planting seeds and we are um, basically um, – priming the pump so that our brothers and sisters who worship in the Anglican churches, the bishops, all begin to see that the opportunity to do ministry on the life issues is a great way to do outreach, evangelism, and to continue to share the gospel. 
What I can hear you say is that while there are Anglicans for Life chapters uh, in the United States and in the UK and in Canada, it's not very strong in Australia. It, that's why we're here, because we want to build it up. That's why you're here. Mm-hmm. All right. And, and that will be interesting for our listeners today, because, uh, well, specifically, uh, you may be someone from an Anglican tradition. You might like to contribute to our conversation. We'll open the talkback lines. Uh, your thoughts on the Anglican Church in Australia. Uh, tell us whether your Anglican community uh, is interested in pro-life issues and whether you think that there ought to be a bigger focus on pro-life issues that come from the Anglican Church in Australia. Now, you don't have to be Anglican to contribute to our conversation today. You might have a question as well. You might have your own experience to share when it comes to uh, these pro-life issues, whether it's to do with abortion or whether it's to do with you euthanasia and someone you know, you might like to contribute to our conversation. You might like to offer your perspectives on our governments. Are our governments, whether that be federal government or state governments, are they taking your pro-life voice seriously? And what are your thoughts on the way that the mainstream media portrays issues of abortion and euthanasia in the media? Let's open those talkback lines. 1-800-880-876 is our number. 1-800-880-876 if you'd like to contribute to our conversation today. Georgette, let's just introduce your story. Uh, You mentioned in our introduction there, as we were just starting to get to know you, that at age 16 you had an abortion. Can you enlarge a little on that for us? Yeah, um, I was 16 years old, and as the youngest of four kids, I'm known as the good girl. (laughs) And I was uh, deeply embarrassed that I got caught, if you will, And I was very much fearful of how a child would impact my future. I wanted to go on to school. I wanted to get married. And I didn't think that anybody would want a woman with a baby. Um, I remember thinking as I drove to the clinic, this feels wrong. But I kept thinking, it's legal, so it's got to be okay. So my moral compass was trying to send up a signal and say, hey, wait a second. I hadn't told my parents that I was pregnant. Um, really, n- very few people knew. And I was thinking that as a 16-year-old, I was equipped to make a decision like that independently. That was back in 1976, and there weren't any um, parental consent laws as we now have in the states. Um, in many states, there's you have to have a parent consent. Um, but back then, we didn't. And I remember I knew it was a baby. But I have to be honest with you and say that I felt like the baby was threatening my future. And it was me or the baby. And a friend told me that an abortion would fix my problem. I didn't know what it was, but I knew that it was going to make the problem go away. So I went in for the procedure at the beginning of October, 16 years old. And the procedure was painful. And I remember cramping up and... I was crying as I was laying on the table, and the nurse walked by me with a stainless steel canister in her hand. And I looked at her, and I said, is that my baby? She patted my shoulder, and she said, it's all going to be okay, honey. And, you know, within an hour, they basically had me up and dressed and gave me some cookies and and sent me on my way. And I went to sleep at my sister's that night, and and I got to up in a fetal ball and was crying. And it was the weirdest feeling because I was relieved that my problem was over. 
I wasn't pregnant anymore. But there was something in my spirit that just wept, and I couldn't stop crying. I cried myself to sleep. I woke up the next morning. It was Sunday morning, and I was getting dressed, and I knew I had to go home and face my mom. And I thought, how do I do this? And as a 16-year-old who was processing a traumatic event and was not really prepared for the process that an abortion procedure is, the assault on your body that it is, I remember getting dressed and thinking, yesterday didn't really happen. It was a bad dream. And, you know, I believe denial is a gift from God when we are traumatized and we don't know how to handle it. Emotionally, I did not know. I wasn't equipped to process what happened. So I went into denial, and I basically pretended that that day never happened, except when I heard the word abortion. Then it would feel like somebody stuck a knife in my stomach and twisted it. And I would go and find alcohol, pot, sex, whatever I could find to fill that empty void and to numb myself. And that's really how I lived for years and years, was trying to numb myself when that word would come up. And it wasn't until years later I had become a Christian and asked God to forgive my sins, but never thought my abortion was forgivable. And yet he he busted through my pain. And one day in my basement, I literally came into um, a sense of a presence with my child. And that was when the denial was broken. And I felt my child in my arms. And I had a, a sense that it was a little girl. I was holding her. I could feel her. And in that moment, the the wall that I had put up came crumbling down. Because you see, for 19 years, I had an abortion, but I never allowed myself to realize what I aborted. Now, all of a sudden, I was face to face with my child. And it wasn't just an abortion. And I realized I had missed out on parenting a gift from God. And that was the beginning of a whole new life for me. Well, our guest is Georgette Forney. Uh, we'll be talking some more about Georgette's story. And you might like to phone a friend, let them know that Georgette's on a vision through the rest of this hour. Uh, we'll come back and continue our conversation just to say that you can be a part of our conversation today. Uh, you may really resonate with some of the things that Georgette is sharing with us. You might have some thoughts on some of those things I mentioned a little earlier. and uh, But your own experience to share, uh, issues with the Anglican Church in Australia as to whether the Anglicans are paying as much attention as they ought to to pro-life issues and what can be done about that. Uh, whether your church, you might not be from the Anglican tradition, you might be from another, uh, another denomination, you might like to talk about whether you think your church is doing enough when it comes to pro-life issues. Well, Georgette is in Australia. She's speaking tonight in Brisbane at the uh, at a, a special function that's being held by Cherish Life Queensland and Ford in Faith at Legion House in Fortitude Valley. The big issues and how they affect you. 2020 on Vision. It's Neil with you on 2020. Our special guest is Georgette Forney. She's president of Anglicans for Life, the official voice of the pro-life cause with the global Anglican Church. She's in Australia and uh, speaking at a number of engagements. She's also the co-founder of of 
what is called Silent No More, an awareness campaign about pro-life issues. Uh, Georgette has been sharing her story. She had an abortion at age 16. And Georgette, when you were sharing your story, I mean, uh, your eyes were welling up with tears. And I did apologise to you in the break that whenever you share your story, no doubt that brings the pain back. And it took 19 years before you really had some breakthrough and recognised that there could be some healing Tell me about that time when you recognized that healing was possible from the pain of having an abortion. Well, you know, what had happened is that I was in a Bible study with some women, and one of the other girls in the group had talked about the fact that she was struggling to bond with her baby. And she was a um, a psychology major. And so she said, I did some research and I found um, that uh, a program for help for women who have had abortions and I remember, so she said she she was going to this counseling for having had an abortion. And I looked at her and I thought, oh, Dana, I said, you know, honey, I had an abortion when I was 16. It was no big deal. Get over it. And the women in the Bible study all kind of looked at each other. And you could tell that I had said something. And I thought I said something brilliant. But it was at that point that those women started praying for me. Because they realized I needed help to deal with this issue, that I was the one that was really hurting, and Dana was the healthy one who was seeking help. Well, about six months later is when the incident happened in my basement, and, and I've always attributed it to their prayers and God breaking through. And so who did I call when I'm having this sense of my baby but Dana? And um So Dana came right over to my house, and she sat on the floor with me, and we wept. And she didn't say, you don't need to cry, and, you know, she didn't try to justify what I did. She just said, I'm here with you, and I'll weep with you. And then she, after (laughs) things calmed down, she by then was leading abortion recovery programs. And so she actually took me through a program, and there were three other women in the group with us, and it was a weekly Bible study. And I always laughed because about Tuesday afternoon, about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, I had myself convinced I didn't want to go to the class that night. And she'd call about 3, and she'd say, you're coming to class, right? I'd say, no, something's come up, and she would talk me back into, because it was very painful. Um, Abortion recovery programs, by nature, kind of make you go back in And deal with what is scar tissue, because it needs to heal in a healthy way. It needs to heal with the love of Christ and and the forgiveness that the cross offers. So you have to go in and you have to peel that stuff back and bring it to the light and apply scripture to the wound. And we did that. And by week six, I was at the place where I couldn't wait to go to class every Tuesday night. And it was life-changing because the monkey... That sin, that constant reminder that I had done something that really went against who I was, it was finally given to God, and in the it, it was replaced with forgiveness, unconditional love. There isn't a sin that we commit that's bigger than the cross of Christ, and he died for our sins, including the sin of abortion. I needed to hear that because I didn't believe it was forgivable.
Let me ask you about the faith intersection with the healing, because some people might be listening to our conversation and they're saying, well, I'm not much of a churchgoer. I'm not much of a person of faith. Uh, You know, they might be listening into uh, the Christian radio broadcaster, but still doubtful about their own faith foundations. Mm -hmm. And they might be saying, well, how does faith contribute to the healing of that type of hurt? If you were able to enlarge on what difference it makes to have faith in Christ, how does that contribute to our healing? Well, it it contributes in a really huge way. And in our post-Judeo-Christian society that we live in, a lot of people don't realize that we need forgiveness. And so they don't know that there is a God who forgives. So the good news, folks, is that God does forgive. And that's the business he's really in. And that's why he sent his son to the cross to die to take our sins upon him. He's taken the punishment. So what's awesome for me and for every person who's a sinner is to be able to know that there is a place that you can go with your sins and that you can seek forgiveness. And then it says in scriptures that our sins are as far as the east is from the west. They're made white and and, and they're cleansed. We're cleansed. And as we as we take that knowledge of the forgiveness and then we look at the circumstances that caused our abortion, we're able to forgive the people involved. But the key to the, the healing programs and why they're critical for people to go through is this simple fact. We have a grieving process we have to go through. You see, somebody died because that baby was not just a blob of tissue like the, the abortion clinics want us to believe. That baby was a human being. And the only way that you can handle death is through the grieving process. And when we, uh, when our babies die in an abortion, the question becomes, where, what happened to them? Where did they go? Are they in heaven? So part of that process is grieving and basically having a memorial service where we basically give them back to God and are assured that they are in heaven. You see, the funny thing is, is that we don't want to believe in God until death is at our door. Then we begin thinking about eternity. And all of Christendom, all of Scripture, is really and truly about the relationship God wants to have with his people, not just here on earth, but for eternity. So our children are in heaven and they will live with us in eternity. And for that, I am so grateful. And every woman and man that has been involved in an abortion and goes through healing will always say as part of their testimony that knowing that their child is in heaven and that they will one day meet him and that there are no tears in heaven is the, is the ability we have then to forgive ourselves It's the hope we have to stand up and share our testimony so that others will find hope as well. Because you see, folks, we can't live stuck in our pain and our shame and our guilt. And we can't find enough cosmetics, uh, consumer products, exercise programs, and, you know, material goods to try to fill the hole. There aren't enough drugs and alcohol out there to fill the void of pain that comes from these issues. Georgette, we mentioned that you are president of Anglicans for Life, 
that your ministry is the official voice of the pro-life cause within the global Anglican Church, that you're in Australia to promote, uh, particularly with Anglicans, but I guess uh, when it comes to pro-life issues, whoever will listen to you. And uh, I know there's people gripped uh, by this conversation today, but you're wanting to see a a raising of the standards uh in the Anglican Church, and you'll be, I guess, meeting with Anglican uh, people who are uh, in the areas of authority who can perhaps uh, give more uh, substance to the way that the Anglican Church deals with these issues. Let me just ask you, the Church obviously does deal with you know, healing for all sorts of things, um, but this would be one of the areas you'd be encouraging the Anglicans and other churches to become involved in is, is healing programs for people who've gone through the pain of abortion. Well, you know, the great thing about churches is that they're not for the healthy, they're for the sick, they're for the sinners who need forgiveness. And so the church, be it the Anglican church, the Catholic church, we all need to recognize that our job is to reach out to those who are hurting, and we need to be about the business of offering help. I love the opportunity that I'm given to help equip the the leaders in the churches, the laity in the church, to to have the tools to stand up for life and to provide the pastoral care. Anglicans for Life works um, to create a lot of uh, publications and educational resources. We've created a curriculum to help our aging and, and dying family members and prepare the church to reach out to them. We've st- we've uh, co-sponsored the Silent No More Awareness Campaign to bring about healing. We promote the healing programs. We are working to equip, engage, and empower the church to really not be afraid of this issue. Oftentimes, the church is afraid of these social issues. But I really believe um, that we need to be united and firm in our stance for life. And, you know, in America, there's a gentleman that he recently died. His name was Dr. Bernard Nathanson, and he was part of the um, architectural team that legalized abortion. He ended up um, becoming a believer and uh, was brought and welcomed into the Catholic faith. But he may, he, he, as he became a believer and he talked about how they legalized abortion, one of his quotes that he used, he said often was, we never thought we'd get away with what we did because we expected the church to be purposeful, organized, and united in standing against us. And the church was not prepared. Well, folks, we're 40 years out from the legalizing of abortion in America. And the church is now very well prepared. The Catholic Church is prepared. The Anglican Church is prepared. And not only are we really working and equipping people to stand up for the sanctity of life on the abortion side, but we're doing just as much work on the euthanasia and assisted suicide side. It's Neil with you on 2020. We're talking pro-life issues today and a special guest who has flown in. She's based in the United States. She's the president of Anglicans for Life. Georgette Forney is our guest. She's told her own story of having had an abortion at age 16 and the 19 years that she went before she realised that there was real healing necessary in her life. Well, her ministry is the official voice of the pro-life cause within the global Anglican Church. 
And there are chapters of Anglicans for Life in the United States, in Canada, in the UK. But in Australia, there's not such a strong voice. And that's why Georgette is here. Georgette, we're inviting our listeners to call in, be part of our conversation today. Our talkback line is open 1-800-880-876. Let's take a call. John is from Cooma in Queens. In Queens, there's a hello, John. It's New South Wales. In, in New South Wales, John. Uh, well, what's your contribution to our conversation today, John? Um, I'm. I know Georgette. Uh, Georgette uh, said earlier that that, that um, um, the the young babies are going to be in heaven. Yep. Um, and I know. The word of God it says is like their angels is always looking after them, but um, salvation is through Jesus and through our confessing our sins and asking, um, and then. Okay, your your question is about babies and being in heaven, and uh, how do we understand babies going to heaven? What are your thoughts, Georgette? Well, I like to use the um, Psalms, and I refer back to David and the fact that um, he sees his son in heaven. He's, his, his hope is in meeting his son. And so I use that hope that God takes our children, or when we've had an abortion, he's merciful, and they are, are, are drawn to him, and we will see them in heaven. They were not given the chance to make the free will decision, but God in his mercy has brought them unto himself as he does, as Jesus talks about, bring the children unto me. So my yeah. hope and prayer is that I will see my daughter in heaven. Yeah, yeah. Like, like I'm not trying to argue, I'm not trying to sort of, but, but, but that's, yeah, I've, I've so often just thought, well, 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 children have got to be in heaven, that they are innocent. I believe that. Uh, and, uh, and, yeah, I like, but then, when through scripture, um, I, I, I get mixed up, but um, but but yeah, but what but what you said just then, yeah, that that does ring. Okay, John, thanks so much for being part of 2020 today. An, an interesting and important question because sometimes we ask these questions of God about people who were not of a particular age where they could actually say, I'm a believer and receive that grace because they've put their faith in Christ. But I think uh, we would understand, and as you say, David talking about his child, and uh, from the weight of Scripture, we'd know that all of those new lives are in God's hands. And sometimes I think, Georgette, uh, when we talk about life starting at conception, life Mm -hmm. is there. The big uh, controversy arose when people started saying, well, it's not when life starts, but when personhood starts. But, of course, as Christian believers, we know that personhood starts when life does, and that's at conception. Well, I I think if you even go back and and look at some of the scriptures that talk about the fact that um, God knew us before he formed us in in our mother's womb, uh, Psalm 139, um, uh, Jeremiah 1, I believe that actually that God has a plan and a purpose for every human life that he's created, and he's got that plan and purpose worked out even before we are conceived. The problem is, is we tend to want to play God and decide who's going to live and who's going to die. And as sad as it is that we see that happening on the on the beginning of life, I am very concerned about how people are playing God at the end of life. And I think that we need to recognize 
that again, as, as at the beginning, only God decides and num- has um, the 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 right and the authority to create life, and He and only He knows when a life is to end. We are not supposed to end our our lives or the lives of our loved ones when we think they're done. We never know how God wants to use a life even at the very end. And we'll talk some more. Uh, Hopefully we'll get lots of time to talk about euthanasia too. Georgette Forney is our guest. You can be a part of our conversation, 1-800-880-876. Our talkback line is open, 1-800-880-876. Let's take a call from Stephen, who's at Tarang in Victoria. Hello, Stephen. Uh, Good day. How are you? Good, Stephen. What's your contribution to our conversation today? Um, Just whenever you're having a discussion about abortion... um, it always often comes up um, that um, what happens if a, a person's been raped, shouldn't they have the right mm-hmm. to, to do that and how would they deal with it? And I just want to know how you can respond out of love and, and have an effective um, uh, point of view sort of that, contra- that, that is a remedy for that. Stephen, I think you ask one of the most important questions because, you know, in, in America, the justification for legalizing abortion is based on that. Um, and, and really only 1% of abortions in America are for rape or incest. So it's a critical question. And what I say to people when when this question comes up is the simple fact that the woman who is raped and then finds out she's pregnant as a result of the rape, and then what we, okay, so now she's 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 been traumatized by the rape, and now we have her pregnant. And the recommendation by everybody is have an abortion because she doesn't want to be reminded of the rape. Well, what we know, because we've interviewed and we've done research with the women who have been raped, had a pregnancy result, and then had an abortion, what they'll tell you is that the abortion was traumatic, all traumatizing them all over again, similar to the rape. So what the women who have experienced this recommend and say is that we believe that a a child that's conceived through a rape should be allowed to be born and placed with a family to adopt that child. Um, the, the, The child sometimes can be a reminder, but the child should not be um punished for how it was conceived. We have a number of men and women that are coming out in the U.S. and are talking about the fact that they were conceived in rape, but that does not make their lives any less meaningful or value uh, valid. And so we believe very strongly that we need to help women. And I think what happens, in, in all honesty, the situation isn't what's best for the woman. It's what's best for society. You see, society wants to be sympathetic with the woman and say, oh, I'm sorry, you're raped. Let's do what we can to put that, you know, put a, put that away and make that go away for you. Instead, we need to be empathetic and come alongside her and walk with her through the painful experience, not be afraid of recognizing that it happened. It's happened. We can't undo it. Aborting the child that's a result of that rape is not going to undo the rape. Now she's just traumatized twice. 
Stephen, I have just been passed a note. Uh, Teresa from Cherish Life in Queensland, who's uh, sitting quietly in the studio, not necessarily part of this conversation, but she's passed me a note uh, saying that Cherish Life Queensland have a brochure that answers this question, is abortion okay in the case of rape and incest? So uh, for listeners around Australia, whether you think it's, oh, that's a Queensland thing, no, uh, nationwide, uh, you can simply Google Cherish Life and uh, if you can find a link there, uh, find a link or send an email and ask for uh, some answers. Is abortion okay in the case of rape and incest? Uh, thanks so much for your call today, Stephen. I really appreciate you being part of 2020. 2020, a biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. It's Neil with you on 2020, taking calls on 1-800-880-876. Our guest this hour, Georgette Forney, who's President of Anglicans for Life and uh, in Australia for a number of meetings. Uh, Georgette, let's spend a little bit of time talking about euthanasia because euthanasia in Australia is a debate that is constantly coming up. Uh, various people putting Uh, all sorts of submissions to Parliament bills to try and get laws changed left, right and centre. There's one particularly well-known doctor called Dr Philip Nitschke who is even today, as we speak, appealing against being suspended from practising medicine. He admitted to supporting a 45-year-old Perth man in his decision to commit suicide and the National Medical Board ruled that he was a serious risk to public health and safety. So these these things are very, very current. Uh, your thoughts on euthanasia in general, but around the world, uh, globally, as you can see things happening, is there optimism to think that euthanasia might uh, be halted in its tracks? I believe that if the church unites and is is purposeful in its efforts to educate and inform people about how our our pro-abortion culture has um, morphed into a pro-death culture that is now um, encouraging death at any level, at any age, for any reason. Um, You know, in the States, we just had a young girl who was 29 years old uh, dealing with a suffering from a brain to, uh, cancer that was, it, it was, you know, terminal. I mean, she was not going to live forever. Uh, she was definitely going to die. Um, she, But it, as I said earlier, we need to let people die in God's time. And, and Brittany, unfortunately, this young woman became a poster child for a very well-funded, well-organized campaign. They What they did is they found a young girl who was a perfect candidate. She had a, a, a the type of terminal illness that she had, inoperable, um, you know, tumor. And they actually put this girl on a pedestal, fed her the words to say, paid for her to move to Oregon so she could kill herself. They funded her, her family's move there and basically had did everything they could to make sure she did. So even when she got to the day before and started – kind of backtracking, there was such pressure on her now to actually go through with it. And what we don't understand is how impressionable people are that are afraid of dying, are afraid of of suffering. And so what we're doing is we're simply saying, here, take a pill and kill yourself. That is never a solution. That is a cheap way out. And it's being promoted by people who I believe have bought into the lie of Satan 
And because, you know, Satan doesn't actually lie to people with a big, gigantic lie. He just twists the truth a little tiny bit. And he twists the truth and he basically is telling people, you can control when you die. You're in control. There is no God. Well, folks, whether or not you believe in God, God is still real. He doesn't need you to believe in him to make him real. I had an atheist um, emailing me the other day, and she was very upset that I said blessings to her. She said, didn't you read my email? I I don't believe in God. And I wrote back and I said, well, that's okay. He still believes in you. (laughs) But I'm sorry. I didn't mean to be sarcastic. But, you know, I think we need to recognize that because God exists, I mean, he's existed for thousands of years. It doesn't matter if people don't believe in him. How we live and die is important to God. And I believe that that we're seeing... Um, the financial support to promote euthanasia and assisted suicide, the funding behind it is growing. They're organized. Um, the Hemlock Society realized that that wasn't a good name, so they're they're enlisting PR firms, and now they're called Compassionate Choices. And you know, we we originally started out in in the late nineteen late nineteen nineties. Holland legalized euthanasia. Well, now in Belgium, not only is euthanasia legal, but you can ask for euthanasia even as a child Um, and anybody at any age. We had twin brothers age 40 who were euthanized because they were um, going deaf and they were afraid of going deaf. So the slippery slope has basically come to the point where we are attempting to legalize murder. Euthanasia is the intentional ending of a person's life. Look in the dictionary, folks. That's the same definition of murder. We are talking some important issues and Georgette Forney putting things in a way that makes it very easy to understand a Christian position, a biblical position when it comes to the value of life at the beginning and also at the end. We're talking issues, abortion and euthanasia, pro-life issues. Our talkback line is open, one eight hundred eighty eight zero eighty seven six. Let's take some more calls. We will need to be quick, though. Uh, one caller who wants to remain anonymous. Uh, hello, it's, uh, it's Neil here. Uh, what's your contribution to our conversation today? Oh, good morning, Neil. Yeah, just... Um Years ago, I dated someone who was um, post-abortive, and you know, I was shocked as a young man to a to find out that you know these things could be done without parental consent uh, through school. Uh, you know, that, that, and so you had, I just was shocked that you could have a you know woman's girl's life put at risk, and the parent wasn't even informed. I'm not sure if it was the same in all states in the 1980s, but um, a that was a shock, but also just. Uh, um, I suppose I, when you're quite young and someone divulges this to you, it's quite a weight to bear, especially when, in the sense of, um, you know, I just remember being told and I just cried my eyes out for this little one and for my friend at the time, it's just such a, a weight that's forced on young young people as if they're... Um, it, it is a weight and let me just get Georgette's thoughts on that. Uh, is this part of the slippery slope too that while you might have thought at least there'd be people involved in the decision uh, even then in so many different places and we're talking here and I guess in Australia uh, where uh, parents were not included? You know, I think what's really tragic is that um, th- the theory behind legalised abortion was that it was going to 
fix things. And what nobody realizes is that legalizing abortion created more problems than it solved. And the, the in your caller's circumstances, what absolutely breaks my heart is that this young man, from what I can gather in the call, was not even the father of the baby. He was just a friend. And he grieves for that lost life. He was touched by that abortion. In other words, folks, abortion impacts. It's kind of like a, it, it doesn't just affect the baby that dies or the mother who has the procedure and the father who loses the baby. But the shockwaves of abortion reverberate out amongst others. My parents had to process the fact that they had lost a grandchild. Our daughter had to process the fact that there was a half-sibling that she would never know. The friends who take a friend to have the procedure done are loan. I had a, a, a woman who donated $30 to the ministry once a year because she loaned her friend $30 to help pay for the, the abortion. So what your friend is dealing with, what your caller is dealing with, is the shockwaves, the, the ongoing reverberation and folks, our culture has been so hurt by the impact of abortion. It has influenced how men look at women, how women look at men. We need to recognize that this goes deeper and has a more lasting impact and that we need to begin to think of how to make abortion unthinkable so that no woman ever feels that she's desperate enough to have to choose death for her child. Georgette Forney is our guest. Uh, we'll take, take some time. Uh, this will need to be a very quick call. Uh, thank you to that anonymous caller. Let's hear from John in Somerset in Tasmania. John, you'll need to be very, very quick, please. Okay, very quick. Yes, uh, two things. I am so glad that, Georgette, you are able to tell your own personal story. I believe that's a very important weapon in the pro-life struggle. The other thing is that uh, having you on the radio today of all days is very timely because our leading uh, pro-euthanasia advocate, uh, Dr Philip Nitschke, has got himself in the news again trying to get re-registered as a general practitioner of medicine. Yes, and we were mentioning that, and you're familiar with Dr. Nitschke. Uh, these, uh, there are people like Dr. Nitschke, uh, I guess, in uh, in all countries. Well, we the had a, the Dr. Jack Kevorkian. He's uh, sadly died um, in prison. He 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 died um, because he was finally penalized for the lives. And the thing that people don't realize, especially in these gentlemen that are out there really promoting it, um, in the in Dr. Kevorkian's later years, he actually not only helped people die, but he harvested the organs of the last man that he he helped kill. He harvested his kidneys. And he talks about, in some of his writings, the fact that the, one of the goals in the whole euthanasia movement is towards organ procurement as a means of helping people. So they've got this kind of utopian methodology. And, uh, you know, those who can't become a utilitarian write-off to help the the greater good, so to speak. But they're playing God, and that's where the danger lies. I think the other thing that's really important, and I appreciate your caller mentioning the, my sharing my testimony, is 
in the um, to get more testimonies, we have on our website the SilentNoMore.com website for the the campaign. We have over twenty three hundred testimonies that people can read, and it's um, you can go right to abortiontestimony.com and read them. There's over three hundred that are on video. So uh, our stories are important. And I know that our stories are saving lives, so share them. You can take them even to a clinic and use them with your smartphone. Courtney Kardashian from the famous Kardashian family uh, is quoted as saying that she went online and read the stories of women who regretted their abortions, and that's why she chose to have her the first baby that she was pregnant with. Well, George, we are running out of time. I want to just thank John from Somerset in Tasmania for his call. Uh, but just to mention uh, that you are speaking in Brisbane tonight and there may be some other engagements that you've got too and people will be able to see the Cherish Life website uh, to find out where those dates are. But you're speaking tonight as a guest of Cherish Life and Forward in Faith at Legion House, St Paul's Terrace, Fortitude Valley in Brisbane. And uh, I know people will want to follow Anglicans for Life and... And uh, you also mentioned Silent No More. Uh, Google any of those and you'll find Georgette Forney. Georgette, uh, just wonderful hearing your story and your thoughts on these things. Thank you so much for being a part of today's 2020. Thank you, Neil. And God bless your listeners. Like what you've just heard? There's more great podcasts. Or you can listen to us live at vision.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener supported. Your donation of any amount will help us continue connecting faith to life. Learn more or donate today at vision.org.au.